0: One way we describe the process is, if you think about, uh, you know, a great investor, right? How do they, you know, build up their intuition and their decision-making capability around buying uh, investments? Well, you know, they in, they, they, they've they been investing for years and years and years. They sit on boards, they watch their successful investments and they watch their their bad investments and they see the outcomes and they learn from those outcomes. What we're doing is basically saying, what if you could give a model, an investor, all the experience that could have been had over the last 50 years? You know, They had the opportunity to invest in every company and see every outcome uh, and learn from that.
1: Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long-term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor.
2: Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand, are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital.
1: Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I sit down with John Albert, co-founder of Euclidean Technologies. We talk to John about the firm's use of machine learning and stock selection. We start with the basics of machine learning and then dig down to how Euclidean uses machine learning to forecast fundamentals and select value stocks. We get into where machine learning may go in the future with investing and whether or not machine learning could someday outdo even the best investors. The use of artificial intelligence and machine learning is a rapidly developing area of investing. And this discussion with John provides great insight on how one firm uses machine learning to help predict outcomes and equities. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Euclidean Technologies John Oliver. Hi, John. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. We're going to spend most of the time talking about machine learning, your investment process, valuing stocks, and where things may be headed in the markets with the increased use of machine learning and artificial intelligence. Um, but to start, I wanted to ask about your pre-value investing career and success. Um, so Based on what I know about your background, you had co-founded what was basically a high growth SaaS company in the web 1.0, maybe transition to 1.2 time period that eventually was um, bought and taken over by ADP. So that was a very nice, successful exit for you. Um, But what I sort of personally find interesting about this story is, you know, it's a unique path for someone that basically eventually became A value investor which we're going to talk about your value approach but you kind of went from this high growth you know not startup but high growth successful business with a successful exit to basically this value investing sort of orientation i guess so maybe can you just talk a little bit about that experience and what ultimately led you down the path to value investing and also like what you're focused on just generally at euclidean technologies
0: uh, yeah, that sounds great. I, I, it's, it's right. I have had kind of two careers. Um, so, so the trajectory sort of started all the way back when I was at Williams college, uh, in Massachusetts. And one day I was in the math library doing homework and got bored and went through the stacks and found this book on, uh, there was a pre- papers, collection of papers on neural networks, which is a big form of machine learning. And, uh, one of the papers described the back propagation algorithm, which is the core algorithm by which most, you know, machine learning hap- happens. And I was just dumbfounded by this idea that, uh, instead of programming computers to do things, we could actually borrow from the analogy of how, you know, people learn, we could teach them how to do things by example. Um, and so you know i kind of went all in on uh, machine learning at this kind of young age wrote uh, a thesis on neural networks um you know graduated from williams and went to uh work for booz allen and hamilton which is the management consulting firm they have an office in dc uh which um you know where they do a lot of government work and um We were doing It's probably like back in 1995. This was probably the only job you could get in machine learning. I mean, machine learning was just not on anybody's radar. Um, So, you know, for me, it was super exciting. It was this crack group of, you know, guys from uh, MIT and Caltech. And we were working on these kind of really innovative problems, like looking at satellite images, uh, you know, to try to detect objects in a scene, doing credit scoring, that was a commercial application and, uh, doing fingerprint recognition, but you know, it was the mid nineties and, uh, well, it was, so there's two things. One mid nineties, it was clear the internet was going to be a big thing. Right. And two, I started to realize that back then there just wasn't enough, uh, computing power to really create sophisticated ML models. Um, you know these things like neural networks require vast amounts of computing power to um work effectively so i kind of like said look you know i'm a computer science guy i uh I, I think the real opportunity right now is in the internet and so i started i co-founded uh with with a good friend of mine a williams uh college classmate um this company called employees which was basically SaaS for human resource and benefits management which you know, software as a service, you know, in the mid nineties was a pretty crazy idea. I mean, we were before salesforce.com. It was very early at the time, like enterprises were sort of dominated by Oracle and PeopleSoft and Microsoft, um, with the client server model, this idea of putting, you know, software in, in, in the cloud, in a data center and having you know, many people access it, uh, was, was very novel and so it so super exciting. Uh, we spent the next 10, 12 years building that company. And then in 2006, we sold it to, uh, the biggest payroll company in the world, automatic data processing. But throughout that whole time, I always had, my heart was always with machine learning, right? That was like where I, you know, got started and I, I just, you know, was in love with the idea of, of being able to teach computers to do things by example. And so I just made some money off the sale of my company. I knew I had to invest this money so I could grow it over the remainder of my life. And I thought, well, what skill set do I have, which, um, you know, I could apply to this, apply to this. And I also knew that at the time, you know, no one in finance was really using machine learning, uh, there were no real commercial applications of machine learning back then, like there is today and so i thought it was you know kind of a neat opportunity this idea of uh you know gathering a bunch of data and seeing if you couldn't use machine learning to you know pick stocks for a portfolio
1: and the value i guess orientation maybe that will that comes out after um that's the output of the machine learning process or algorithm so it's, is that how you landed on value or, or was there some other influence of value that um, had you think about using value in the machine learning sort of technique? Well, let
0: me first talk a little bit about machine learning uh, and what exactly it is. Uh, and then I'll explain how that, you know, got me to value. Um, so what is machine learning? There's actually a bunch of different forms of machine learning, supervised learning, unsupervised learning, but all the machine learning you hear about in the news, the stuff that Google does and Amazon that makes these huge breakthroughs, uh, in language translation and image recognition, self-driving cars, that's all what's called a uh, supervised learning. And so just to focus on supervised learning for a sec is in supervised learning, what you're trying to do is learn a mapping from input to output. So the, the, the input might be. You know weather data like you know what's the cloud cover today you know is it raining what's the wind speed what's the barometric pressure and the output might be is it going to rain tomorrow or not right uh it could be that's a that's a simple problem a much more complicated problem would be the input is you know uh, a sentence in french and the output is a sentence in english um in the case of uh Uh, investing, the input might be all the information, you know, about a stock at a point in time and the output might be, uh, how well did that stock perform over the subsequent year? Um, at any rate, at any rate, the goal of machine learning is to learn, to map input to output. And that process is done not by, you know, me programming it and saying, this is how you get from A to B it's by presenting an algorithm with lots of examples of, you know, French sentences and the English equivalent, millions of uh, of examples of that, and then the algorithm basically tweaks the model, typically in an iterative way, but not always, tweaks the model such that it minimizes the out the, how much error it makes when it um, basically the difference between what the model outputs and what the uh, target example is, what the actual you know English sentence is, and that process is basically is called you know, the process of error minimization. Um, and uh, again, it's typically an iterative process. And th- the idea is that by minimizing that error, the model eventually learns to map A to B. Um, so getting back to, uh, like, how did that take us to, you know, being effectively a value investor? Um, it's that <clears throat> the, the The way I pose the problem and the way that Euclidean's always thought about the problem is of of investing and machine learning is how do I build a better stock picker, right? It's not when a lot of people like apply math and data uh, to investing, you know they're trying to do things like statistical arbitrage or portfolio optimization. At the end of the day, I just wanted to build a better stock picker, right? So, it, 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 it makes sense, right? Like if you think of other areas of machine learning, like self-driving cars, what are you trying to do? You're trying to build a better driver. Um, another, you know, big area of machine learning is um, looking at medical images and trying to predict whether there's a cancerous, you know, tumor in the image. Uh, you know, what are you doing there? You're trying to make a better radiologist. Uh, so what I was just trying to do is say. That's, you know, to the extent that investors can just look at publicly available information and uh, decide whether something's a good investment or a bad investment, what I was essentially just trying to do is, you know, replicate that, but not through experience, but but substituting that experience with basically all the data that is, you know, ever, you know, going back to the 1950s on companies, all the information about companies and their outcomes. So how do you set that problem up? What you do is you take at each point in time, every, every company and all the data that is available about them. It could be that data could be in the form of factors like, you know, price to book, or it could be, or, or return on capital or volatility of earnings over the last five years, or with more advanced machine learning, you could just feed, you can just feed it the raw data, like, like raw financial information you know, going back five years or 10 years. Um, At any rate, you know, as I described earlier, the whole process of machine learning is you're trying to minimize this error function, right? Uh, In the output, the difference between what the models outputting and what the actual outcome was. And so one way to set that up for investing is, um, is give it fundamental data for each company at each point in time. And then you say, as, as the output, um, did it outperform the market over the subsequent year or not? And then you feed that to the machine learning algorithms and it tries to minimize the error of predicting, you know, whether, you know, this company at this point in time would have outperformed the market or not over the subsequent year. And the the point there though, is like, when you do that, it definitely, uh, Comp, that model if you set it up that way so your error function is does the company outperform and the input is fundamental data and you know maybe the price of the company it will absolutely converge to have a, a value bias it's like if you could ask the data let's say you had a conversation with the data and you said okay how could i use you to pick companies that do well it would tell you you know well, you want to do something like this, and it has a value bias, um, it, and and momentum too. I mean, and 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 so th- this goes by. This shouldn't be a surprise. Um, you know, like there, you know, how many thousands of papers have tested various value factors and found efficacy, uh, going back a long, long time, um, and true of momentum too. And I'll say, momentum will will if you give it momentum data as input, it will pick up on that and it will use it. And the, and it will improve your model, um, but but that's just what the data says, and, and and it should be no surprise then that if you look at most systematic investors, um, you know, be it AQR or Alpha Architect or so, they all, you know, they have a value bias, and they, they don't have a value bias because they're you know dyed in the wood wool value people. It's just what the data told them uh, works over the long run.
2: Before we get into your, your strategy a little bit more, because it's, it's really interesting, I wanted to ask you first about just the idea of how much data is available you know, for a machine learning process in, in investing. Because uh, I was reading this research paper from Research Affiliates a long time ago, and I wanted to read you a quote from that and, and sort of get your reaction to it. Um, the quote was, today we have 55 years of high quality equity data or less than 700 monthly observations for many of the metrics in each of the stocks we may wish to consider. This tiny sample is far too small for most machine learning applications and impossibly small for advanced approaches such as deep learning. I'm wondering, what do you think about that?
0: Well, I read that and it's it's hard for me to make sense of that because when I think about, um, you know, what I'm trying to do, which is pick stocks, right? So he's multiplying what 500, uh, by or 700 by the 55, 700 observations. But, um, what, what I'm trying to do is pick stocks. So there are 5,000 stocks uh you know available at any point in time at least uh you know maybe not going back all the way to the 1960s or whatever but for the most but there's a uh, probably on average about three to five thousand stocks well if you and then you have each point in time there's a potential forecast for me when i think about that there's um you know five thousand uh times you know uh the 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 700, which is like three, more than 3 million. So they say that, um, so that makes, so, so that makes it, you know, in my mind, if I'm thinking about what the input examples are and what are the, what are the, the output, you know, the input being companies at each point in time and the output being, you know, did it outperform the market or not? To me, there's millions of, uh, examples of that, um, the uh, if, if on the other hand, let's say we were trying to predict not whether a company will do well or not, but let's say we were trying to predict whether the S and P over the next month is gonna go up or down, uh, then you, you're right. You really only do have, you know, 12 times 55 you know, we're about 75 observations, because you just try to, you you're building a model to try to forecast the S and P, but like what what we're doing is trying to generalize from looking at lots of companies to apply to build a model that we can apply to new companies. Um, so I, you know, what they say is typically for, you know, there's, there's sort of old school machine learning, which is uh, simple models. And then there's the new stuff, which is deep learning. Uh, they say with, you know, traditional machine learning, um, you know, you need 10,000 plus examples to, you know, build a model. And then with deep learning, the kind of the newer, uh, machine learning that, um, has, you know, made huge strides in the field. Um, you want at least a hundred, I mean, I've heard different things thrown around, but you can start with a hundred thousand or so examples. So, you know, I think you know, given that there are millions of examples of companies at different points of time with different outcomes, uh, there's, there's plenty of data. There's not near, there's not as much data as there is say on to build a language model where you have all of Wikipedia and every book that's ever been read. Um, but, uh, there is still certainly enough data.
2: And and to your point too, if you think about this as sort of a process that learns, I mean, human beings are also have a process that learns. So, if human beings have 55 years of data and 700 monthly observations, then you would think if it's sufficient for people, it would be sufficient for this as well. One of the interesting things you guys did is, you know, a lot of the machine learning models I've seen used in investing, they attempt to predict stock prices and you went a different direction and you try attempt, or attempting to predict fundamentals. I'm wondering if you could talk about why you did that and sort of how that works.
0: Yeah, so it gets, to be, gets, it gets back to this fact that there's kind of two, so there's like the, the traditional machine learning and there's this newer deep learning. And, uh, so let me just explain that difference real quick. Uh, you know, when back in, uh, so, so, so the, the, the traditional learning kind of the best models out there are these things called decision trees or ensembles of decision trees. Kind of everybody knows sort of loosely what a decision tree is, you know, you follow down a path and, you know, you use your, your inputs, like that weather data to say, oh, is barometric pressure above this. Or it's, you know, is, uh, is it raining today? And you end up at a leaf and it says, oh, it's going to rain tomorrow or it's not. You know, that's, that's what a decision tree is. Um, and then, uh, this notion of ensemble of decision trees, you know, they've shown what works much better than just a single decision tree. And it's kind of loosely related to the idea of wisdom of crowds. You build you know, a bunch of, uh, different models. Um, so that's kind of the more traditional um approach to machine learning and actually for most problems that is an amazing solution it works really well at a typical problem but um you know go back to like 2005 and like language translation image recognition voice recognition uh and a bunch of other stuff like that it was just terrible there was not you know ai was terrible right it couldn't It was way worse than what a human could do at all those tasks. But then somewhere in the 2010s, all of a sudden, like, you you know, you're, when you're in Gmail, it's completing sentences for you, uh, you know, language translation is as good in many cases and better than, uh, what a, what a professional translator could do. Um, all that was because of the sort of advent of deep learning and what is, so what is deep learning? So. Deep learning is based on this idea of an artificial neural network uh, where the models are very complex. There's many layers to these artificial neural networks. And so um, the model is able through all those layers to untangle very complex relationships in the data. So when deep learning came along and was making all these incredible it was when it came along and there was all these amazing innovations and it was breaking all these records in terms of performance on things like image recognition and language translation you know of course at euclidean we want to look at all the new stuff that's coming out in, in in with machine learning um because we're basically a company that is formed around the idea of applying machine learning to investing um and Google and Amazon and all these other Facebook were pouring, you know, billions of dollars into ML research and really pushing the envelope. And so we sort of felt that, you know, we had made a commitment to our investors to always evaluate whether we can improve our models through innovations in machine learning. And so we explored the use of uh, deep learning. So this sort of kind of newer technique to the problem that, um, you know, of, 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 investing and what we found, which was pretty interesting because at the time we were using these ensemble of decision trees, um, models to, uh, basically do what I explained earlier, which is, you know, try to predict whether a company is going to outperform the market over a one year period of time. Um, what we found is that using deep learning, it, um, it just didn't, it didn't perform any better than this more traditional, uh, um machine learning techniques on that problem and what we speculated was that uh that it's the problem is just very noisy and there's a lot of you know extraneous factors that are involved with whether a stock's going to go up or down that are way outside you know what fundamentals you know can can say about what it's going to do and and when problems are you know that noisy and you have a very complicated model, like a deep learning model, it tends to fit the noise. um, And what that's exactly what you don't want. You want your model to fit the signal. And so that when you apply the model, you know, to new data, it's not kind of looking for the noise, it's looking for the signal. Um, And so so that's essentially what we found is that deep learning applied to trying to predict how well a company is going to do from a stock price perspective um, was no better than what we could achieve with, um, ensembles of decision trees. And so, but there was also this thing going on you probably are familiar with this when you're typing, if you use Google mail, you know, you're typing an email and it completes your sentence, right. Or tries to complete your sentence. Yeah, I've seen that. Well, that's, that's a deep, that's, that's a deep learning model. And it's, it's this no decide this idea of sequence to sequence learning where you have a sequence of data and you're trying to complete that sequence. And so if you think back to what, you know, how machine learning works is what, how, how do you do that? Well, your input is the beginning of the sequence, random, you know, all sorts of sequences and your output is the end of the sequence. And you're trying to learn to map, you know, the input sequence to the output sequence. Um, so it occurred to us that, you know, this is, uh, um, financials you know historical financials on a company such as you know what's on the earnings you know income statement what's on the balance sheet and what's on the cash flow you know the cash flow statements that is a sequence of financials that goes back um you know how however long the company's been around and so you could think of of you could posit this problem of what if you could Use a sequence to sequence learning model to sort of use it to forecast what the next step is going to be in the sequence of financials. So, you know, we basically know, you know, the financials of a company from, you know, you know, March of 22, 2022 going backwards. And so let's, you know, build a model that, that attempts to forecast what the next step in this sequence was. Now, this problem is less noisy, right? Than um, you know, trying to predict, uh, the stock price of a company. And so the thinking was, well, maybe if it's less noisy, maybe it could, uh, improve upon, uh, what we were able to achieve when we were uh, trying to, um, you know, forecast what the, how, 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 how the company will perform from a stock price perspective. And so, you know, we set out to do that. There's a lot to it, but, uh but eventually that culminated in a paper that we first published at um, you know one of the most prestigious machine learning conferences uh Neuro-Ips, and then subsequently we uh got a, got a got a subsequent paper that focused on uncertainty in those forecasts at um, um, ICML which is also a Big machine learning conference. Do
2: you have do you have certain core variables you're trying to predict? Or are you pretty much trying to predict everything on the income statement, the count cal- the balance sheet, the cash flow statement?
0: So we are. So it's that's a good question. Um, the we did this study. Like, first of all, when we came up with the idea of sequence to uh, sequence learning on financial statements, we thought, well, is it even valuable to forecast financials, right? Like What you really care about at the end of the day is what the stock price is going to do, right? So is it even valuable? So we came up with this idea, we call it the clairvoyance study and we said, what if you could predict what the fundamentals of a company will be perfectly one year out, and then we, you know, we have these sophisticated (laughs) stock uh, portfolio simulators and we, and, and so, you know, obviously you can't do this for real because um, you don't know the future, but we just said, assume you do how well would you do performance wise? And we did it for a bunch of different factors. so we did we did it for future cash flow, we did it for future um you know uh, operating income, we did it for future uh, sales, we did it for future book value. and uh, what we found was that, Forecast if you could forecast, or if you knew perfectly what the future operating income or the future cash flow would be, you you I mean you just do amazingly well, right? Now again, I got a caveat that that's not possible because you don't actually know the future. Um, but what it implied was that if you can forecast the future with any degree of success, that you could probably very much improve, you know, a value based strategy. Uh, 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 by, by, by by trying to close the gap between what you could do if you knew the future perfectly and what you would do if, for example, you were just using trailing 12 months, uh, operating income.
2: So are you beyond that? You're just, are you applying standard valuation ratios? Just the idea is you're applying them against a better predictor of fundamentals than what other people have available. Is that kind of the idea?
0: That's, oh, there's, well, okay, this, uh, there's, there's a couple parts to that, but the first part is yes. are so, so what we do now is we have this deep learning model that forecasts operating income into the future. Um, but you know, i you know, it's much easier to do that, right? Than it is to, you know, forecast what the price movement is gonna be. Um, and so, so that's important. And then we, and then we use that operating income, we divide it by you know, the current total enterprise value, which is, you know, a pretty typical way to do. Um, that's a pretty a, a good factor. It's gent- like, when, like, when people test different value factors, kind of the ones that percolate to the top are EBITDA, EBIT, um, one of those two over enterprise value. And so what we do is we forecast those those perform the best if you compare them to, you know, uh, book to market or price to earnings or sales to, you know, market, um, you know, the EBIT and EBITDA over enterprise value really performs well. So we forecast, um, we forecast that EBIT divide that by enterprise value. We rank stocks and then, you know, we buy, you know, whatever the ones, ones that rank high on that, but that's not all of it, right? Cause forecasting is still, well, well, it's easier to forecast you know, future EBIT than it is to forecast future price, there's still a lot of error in that. Um, and we know that with consensus estimates, right? People are always, um, you know, making estimates on what future earnings are gonna be, but you know, we, we know that that's not always right. And you can look back that the error rate is like, you know, 25, 25 to 30%. Um, and doing that with ML, uh, with a deep neural network is maybe a little bit better, but not dramatically better um but what you you can do with ml uh which is incredibly powerful is this notion of quantifying the uncertainty in that forecast you know if you think about like a when when you're watching you know the weather channel and you're they're showing a picture of a hurricane you know a a hurricane going into florida they don't just show a line they show a whole cone of uncertainty around that line And what they've done there is they've quantified, you know, all the different paths it might take, knowing that there's a lot of uncertainty in these forecasts. And so we kind of, you know, took this idea, Amazon had been doing a lot of research in, uh, forecasting and uncertainty. Um, and, you know, we used, you know, we piggybacked on some, on on some of that research and, uh, we, we started to build models, which not only forecast you know what future EBITs going to be, but how much confidence or how much certainty do we have in that forecast? We we're basically building uncertainty cones around that. And if you think about that, what 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 it allows you to do is sort of uh, quantify it, the idea of margin of safety, right? So, like the idea of margin of safety is you know you're know, like you know I think maybe this company can probably make you know. <clears throat> A hundred million dollars next year, but, um, you know, there's, I have, there's some uncertainty in that. Um, and so what I'll do is I'll, you know, use a low, you know, a lower number, which I think I can be more confident on and see if the company is still cheap on that lower number. So if you think about how we use that in, uh, at Euclidean, is we forecast these uncertainty cones. And so you can use, uh, you can basically discount, um, EBIT over forecast EBIT over enterprise value by that uncertainty. And it, at least, you know, in, 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 in simulation, portfolio simulation, it proves the performance quite a bit.
2: That's really interesting. So the the idea is basically, if I have two companies that have the same EV to EBITDA, but one company has a much tighter range around the EBITDA, then I'd probably want to invest in that company rather than the one with the wider range. Is that sort of the idea?
0: Yeah. If they're, if they're the same price.
2: Um, I want to ask you, I just want to shift to value traps quick. I, I was reading, I think it was your most recent quarterly letter, nah. but it was one of your quarterly letters. And you know, I've always thought this is one of the better uses of machine learning is this idea of trying to limit value traps. You know, we know as a value investors, there always are going to be some of them, but the idea of limiting them, because this is probably one of our biggest problems, is really interesting to me. And you talked in your letter about using neural networks to try to minimize value traps. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you did that um, and sort of how much success you had in maybe reducing the number of value traps.
0: Yeah. So we've, we've done it now with deep neural networks. We originally did it with, um, you know, just the decision trees and it's always been, uh, you know, an important part of our process. Um, and yeah, right. You know, there like, there's a lot of companies out there that may look cheap and um, they look cheap on current EBIT to enterprise value or whatever your valuation metric is, but it's gonna, t- but, but for some reason, It's going to turn out that a year from now that EBIT is going to be way smaller and your model doesn't know that. And so it looks cheap, but it's not. And so what we did is, you know, going back to that problem of like, does a company outperform the market or not, um, as the output and fundamental data as the input, what we did is we, we posed the problem this way. We said, give, uh, the model as input, all, you know, fundamental data. Uh, again, sort of like for the original model, but, but, but you're only going to look at companies that are cheap. So you're sort of carving out the inexpensive universe and that inexpensive universe could be on forecast, uh, operating income to enterprise value, or it could be on trailing 12 months. Um, but, but, but the basic idea is you carve out this, the top 30% of cheapest companies, and then you assign, you know, one or zero to each company, which is was it in the bottom decile of performance over the next 12 months or not? And so basically 10% of the data is assigned a one in the bottom decile. And 90% of the data is not in the bottom decile in terms of performance, but again, it's within the space of value. And then you basically train your model to try to forecast whether it's gonna be a value trap or not. And, uh, you know, it turns out, uh that we just, just from fundamental data alone and, and, and momentum, of course, remember a strong factor, uh, you know, it can, uh, it, it, gives us the ability to remove some value traps.
2: And you may not be able to give this away because this might be part of your secrets, but are, are there certain fundamental variables that were like very important in terms of limiting value traps?
0: Um, yeah.
2: Um, you know, with
0: deep learning, the what the model's doing, it's a little more opaque, but with what we again, we did this with decision trees at first. Um, and you can analyze those very, very easily. And yeah, I'm perfectly comfortable explaining what some of the important factors were, but they were really around consistency of operations in the business. Uh, you know, like uh the volatility of earnings, you know, over the last several years. Um There's, there is a leverage ratio in there. So like if the company's too levered, um, but then momentum too, right? So if the recent stock price momentum is really bad and it's a, and it's, and it's already a cheap company, um, then, uh, you know, then, then, then that was a pretty big factor as well. Um, retained earnings to assets was a, was a big factor in that. Um, but yeah.
2: Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. Um, it's, it's interesting, and this sort of gets to my next question is a lot, a lot of those things would be things that would make sense. You know, you, you would say as an investor, you know, without using machine learning, like those things should have an impact on limiting value traps. And this sort of gets to my next question, which is, you know, all of us that are factor investors have this idea that our factors should be intuitive. So, in other words, they should make sense. Um, and I want to read you a quote from Robert Mercer and he, he's doing, you know, Robert Mercer Renaissance, and they're doing a very different type of investing than you and I are. But, you know, what they've found with a lot of their models is that that idea really doesn't matter. You know, so his quote basically is the signals that we've been trading for within trading without interruption for 15 years, make no sense. Otherwise someone else would have found them. And I'm wondering how important is it that the factors that the machine learning model finds are intuitive, that they make sense to us, or is is it possible for it to find a factor that maybe doesn't make sense to a human being, but have that factor continue to work in the future, you know, even though it doesn't necessarily make sense.
0: Well, so here's the thing, like when. The way that I've set up the problem, you know, with fundamentals and momentum and as the input and the how companies can perform or their earnings is the what we're trying to forecast. I just have never had to come back with something wacky, right? It's all, you know, it's always, you know, uh, if a company's been kind of growing, then it's probably going to forecast it continuing to grow unless there's a whole bunch of debt. Um, or if the operations are really inconsistent, um, if it did come back with something wacky, uh, you know, I don't know what that would be like, but like, you know, number of employees, to, I don't know. some uh, I, I would probably investigate, you know, yeah. <laughs> I'd probably be like, okay, is this picking up on, did I set something up wrong? Um, but I think, you know, at Rentec, you know, they're. I mean, I, I, you know, you know, they're, they're pretty quiet about what they do there. So, um, you know, they may be, you know, th- their problem is set up differently, right? They're maybe not looking at fundamentals as much. Maybe they're f- focused more on kind of market dynamics and, uh, and that sort of stuff. So, uh.
2: Yeah, so you you it yeah, like you're probably tackling pr- this problem by only feeding it data that you know should have something to do with stock prices. So you know, there's, there's always that joke about like the S and P 500 being correlated with butter production in Bangladesh. I mean, you're not feeding yeah, the right. butter production in Bangladesh into your <laughs> model, and so you could have more confidence probably that what it's coming out with is going to make some sense.
0: No, I mean that's a good point. I mean, uh, yeah, and th- that kind of gets back to something you were saying earlier on how, yeah, like you know, with machine learning. Um, you know, these factors make sense to us, right. Uh, return on capital and volatility and, uh, you know, price, you know, the, the price ratios and so forth. But the one thing that machine learning and deep learning does allow you to do is it allows you to bypass the, that whole process of factor engineering, right? Instead of, you know, saying, okay, I think that, you know, ebit to enterprise value or i think that sales to enterprise value or i think that volatility of return on capital is good when when we give the data as input to our deep neural networks it, it's basically seeing the financial statements as they they were presented there's no ratios and you're you know we talked about deep learning how it's there's many layers and it can find complex relationships so what what it is doing is it's you know kind of coming up with its own factors it's letting the data guide the process of finding what's the best way to evaluate this information right mean, I think really that's what machine learning brings to the table is it allows you to not you know to to approach it in 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 sort of an unbiased way or it can find novel things that you know people wouldn't think of. I just again <clears throat> I've never had it, you know, come back, except maybe in cases where something was not set up, right, come back with something that just doesn't make sense.
1: So, so we have established (laughs) that the output of the model, you know, mostly brings you into these types of value stocks. I'm just curious, do you tend to find them being more Ben Graham deep value or are they more like value and quality, which would be Greenblatt? Or is there quality sort of factors in there generally, when you look at these positions? So I would say the answer that is somewhere in the middle,
0: you know, between Buffett and Graham style models, where um, certainly the companies that it picks are very inexpensive. But if you were to train a model only on, you know, what it needs to do evaluation and leave out all the stuff it needs to assess you know the leverage of the company or um how stable its earnings are and so forth it would do a the the model would perform a lot worse so my point is adding all that extra fundamental data it gets used and so it's 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 using that to say something about you know whether this is a good company Uh, whether this is a company where you should have confidence in uh, that their earnings are going to be, you know, X in a year from now. I'll also add that if you do that and you don't include momentum, it does worse as well. So, uh, you know, that, that momentum plays, it does play an important role. And I think that the reason that is, is that if you look at our forecasts, the, the, you know, the time that they perform, the worst is when there's known information out there that's not included in, uh, the historical fundamentals, right? So take this example of a company who I think they were a, uh, cell tower company or a, a um, a cell tower equipment manufacturer, but they had three customers and one of them was AT&T. And they, you know, the CEO was like, we're losing AT&T. Well, the fundamentals look great, you know, growing, growing, growing. And so the model is going to say, okay, it's growing, but we know that, uh, you know, 30% of its revenue is about to go away and its profits are going to drop like crazy. And so in that it's those sort of scenarios where <clears throat> a model based only on historical fundamentals is going to get it wrong. But that short term momentum piece, like when the CEO makes that announcement, You know the stock drops so the model can be like oh you know i need to revise my forecast because i'm getting some kind of signal from the market that they know something that i don't
1: yeah it's a good example of how momentum i think can help identify those problems that you know aren't going to necessarily be picked up in the in the you know financials at least immediately um and that kind of it sort of leads somewhat into the next question which is you know over the last i'd say maybe five years or so Um, obviously, the importance of intangible assets has become much, I think, more understood. I mean, maybe those investors and there has been investors talking about that for a long time. But, you know, I think particularly like systematic uh, value investors, you know, that use the price to book have now realized that, you know, as more and more value becomes intangible assets that aren't necessarily reported on the balance sheet, that becomes an issue um when using traditional you know sort of financial statements and 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 some of these ratios so i how do you think about sort of that challenge i guess when running your models
0: um yeah so you know the original quantitative investors or quantitative investor thinkers fama and french you know they chose book to market as their uh their valuation ratio and so There's so much literature and so much data that's based on that. You know, Kenneth French has that great website with all the factor models on it going back to, you know, the 1930s, which, you know, is a great trove of data. But the unfortunate thing is that it's all based on this book to market, um, you know, value ratio. And in fact, you know, most of the industry forever, I think I've, I've noticed there are a lot of funds that have changed this over the years, but it's kind of, you know, when people say value, uh, they, they, you know, that 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 style box is largely based on book to market. Um, But as we know, you know, book value uh, does not include um, the extent that the, the, you know, the true value of the intangibles. And if you look at, you know, uh, book to market as a factor, over the last you know, 5, 10, 15 years, it's deterioration is much worse than, uh, you know, the other value factors, which, you know, I have, you know, all value in the last five years has, has had, um, challenging time, um, but book to market more so. And I think, uh, I think the reason is probably obvious, right? That, um, you know, that as we've mo- moved more towards a service economy, a technology-based economy. Uh, more of the assets that a company has are not quantified in that in that book value number. And so it's you know, not you know, fair way or a good way to uh, value the company
2: when when they when the machine learning models look at that, will they kind of figure that out on their own? So will they look at things like you know r and d and s g and a and basically say, you know these are very important factors? Is that kind of the way they'll think about intangibles?
0: right. So going back to, um, you know, this, uh, idea that you can just feed the raw fundamentals to the model and it kind of figure out, you know, is able to figure out what's important. Uh, yeah, you give it the opportunity to do that. Um, and, and, and allow it to leverage that information. I, I, I'm not sure. I, I don't think the, really the model at all pays attention to book value. Hmm. It's really focused mostly on, you know, what can this company Uh, or
1: have you noticed i mean you've been obviously running this model for a long time and developing these models and so as these models learn do you do is it is it a noticeable change in the composition of the portfolio i mean obviously the fundamentals are always changing in the market and there's always a jockeying between companies or industries or businesses that are growing and that where there's value based on some of these value metrics but you know if you were to take a snapshot of 1231-2020, 1231-2010, 1231-2020, 1231-2010, and then, you know, I don't know, uh, you know, twelve thirty one ninety nine. 99 would you see a lot of difference in the types of companies that this model would be selecting? Because since it's constantly learning, you would think that, you know, it wouldn't necessarily be like heavy in financials during all those periods or whatever type of, you know, area it's finding. Does that question make sense?
0: yeah uh it does um and so so it it does change through time i mean and you know what's that driven by it, it can depend sometimes it's just driven by evaluation right so i remember looking at the 80s and pa- the packaged food industry for whatever reason was you know you know being captured as you know ranked high by our models um you know These days, uh, you know, sometimes it's, it's, it's more focused on energy. Um, so yeah, it does change over time. And I think that can be, uh, you know, for more than one reason, you know, it could be just because that industry is getting beat up from a valuation perspective, or it could be that, you know, there's, you know, fundamentally, these are better companies now. Um, it just kind of depends on the situation, but there is a cycle there. It is that there's an interesting question there. It's like, when you build these machine learning models, should you wait the present, like the last 10 years, more than, you know, 20 years ago or 30 years ago or 40 years ago. And we've tried that, right. We've tried to look at, you know, uh, putting more emphasis on, you know, more recent periods and surprisingly it, it, it you know, didn't improve performance of the model.
1: Just wanted to ask you a, a few more questions here before we um, wrap up. Do you think there are still areas of investing where a human investor is better than a machine? And you know, before we jumped on with you, Jack and I were talking about. We're talking about like uh, we were like, okay, so let's name like a, a really great successful value investor. And obviously, who comes to mind? Buffett. But then we were like, well, wait a minute. Who are the really successful value investors that are out there in the market today? And obviously, there's far less and less of. There's a, there's many great discretionary investors, but in terms of these guru investors or, or superstar investors, you know, maybe there's a few guys at Fidelity that have great long term records. But I mean, do you think there's areas where humans are are better than machines? I mean, I do think that, uh,
0: like, <clears throat> so the only way to do just amazingly well in a uh, long only investing is to have a very concentrated portfolio, right? Like 10 to 12 stocks. Um, and I do think we're not there yet with machine learning that, uh, that if you want to build that kind of, you know, stock picker, um, you need a tremendous amount of confidence around every name that you invest in. And, uh, you know, the models are just not producing estimates that can give you that kind of confidence. Uh, So I would say, you know, I would say that I think that there's big opportunity though, still, um, still unfound, which, which is basically in the area of uh, natural language processing, Um, so much of the information that exists about a company at any given time, so much of the information that like a Buffett or a great investor there's a concentrated portfolio. I know he doesn't anymore, but at one time he had a very concentrated portfolio. So much of that information they're getting by reading or listening to transcripts. Um, going back to the example of the wireless you know, systems company that was going to lose AT&T and 30% of their revenue. You can't get that from the, the financials, uh, the historical financials. Um, but you can get that if you read the transcripts. Well, where has machine learning and deep learning really advanced? Uh, it's in this area of natural language processing and also uh, computer vision. And I mean, you know, Google and uh, others are releasing these incredibly sophisticated language models these days. Um, and so being able to have a machine that could can read those texts and say, you know, hey, look, the CEO just said we're losing our big the biggest customer. Uh, we need to adjust these um uh we need to adjust our our forecasts accordingly. Um, in theory, it could do that. Um, and so like today at Euclidean, that's where a hundred percent of our effort I mean, I feel like we've taken fundamental data <laughs> and that, that's quantifiable and and structured, and we have basically you know done everything you can to figure out how to use that data to um, to select stocks. Um, so the remaining, um, you know, the, re- <clears throat> the remaining uh, area is, you know, use unstructured data and really take advantage of what deep learning can do um, to help make make a better investor, and maybe will someday, you know, be able to make one that could have much more concentrated portfolio.
1: Yeah, that's great. I was going to ask you, you know, where you think 10 years from now, you know, where you think what machine learning could be doing for the investor, but I think you answered probably part of that with what you're working on right now. And, and maybe the use of other alternative data sets too, and coupling that with the the fundamental research that you're doing. Yeah, no,
0: I think that's right. I think unstructured data, uh, good unstructured data. and it's challenging because, you know, we have this structured data going back to, you know, whatever the 1960s with really high quality, structured um, fundamental data and, and stock price movement and so forth. Uh, but this textual data, you know, is much more spotty as you go back in time. So one of the really important um, sort of technical problems we're working on is once you have a model that's just fundamental based, and has been built using data going back 55 years or so, uh, how do you in- augment that model with the new unstructured data um, to you know, attempt to improve performance, even though that data doesn't go back all the way to you know, 1965 or so.
1: And our standard closing question that we like to ask all of our guests is, if you could, based on your experience in the market, if you could impart one piece of wisdom Or teach one lesson to your average investor. What would that be?
0: I mean, I think you know there there is a very easy way to do okay in the stock market, right? And that is uh, buy an index. And odds are, you know, you will do very well over your lifetime. Um, Picking stocks is very hard. Um, It's incredibly competitive, and so if you're interested in it, you just got to think about. You know, you know, how much do you love it? Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, you, and you also have to think about your temperament, you know, because with any strategy, you know, there's going to be times like 2008, where it goes down, you know, 37% or so. And, um, just, you know, for some people, it's just, I think, better to lock it away and not have to think about it every day. Um. But for others, if you're, if you're passionate, um, and, and you feel like, you know, you don't worry too much about the daily ups and downs, then, um, you know, it can be a, a really exhilarating thing.
1: Great, John. Thank you very much. If people want to learn more about, um, what you're doing, read your research, which I highly recommend any piece you guys put out. Um, I try to get my hands on it pretty quickly, um, or follow you on Twitter. Where can they go to learn more? Uh, Euclidean.com, uh, we we try to
0: be very transparent about what we're doing and we publish, um, you know, lots of uh, research articles up there and also um, our more formal research papers as well. So anybody who's interested, I'd encourage them to take a look.
1: Great, thank you very much, John, appreciate it. Thank you. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube, or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.